Welcome to the Business Bookshelf podcast. I'm your host, Lance Pepler. Like you, I'm a lifetime learner and find books one of the best ways to do this. The purpose of this podcast, then, is to interview authors of new business books, get insights into their thinking, lives, and businesses, all in a light-friendly manner. Before we start, can I ask that if you think someone will benefit from listening to a podcast about authors discussing their books, which covers a broad range of business-related topics, then won't you tell them about the podcast? And if you haven't subscribed, then consider doing that as well. Today, our guest is Dr. David White. David is a partner and co-founder of Ontis Global and a cognitive anthropologist focusing on new approaches to organizational culture and change based on the emerging science of the cultural mind. At Ontis Global, he helps organizations manage and sustain transformation. David is the author of Disrupting Corporate Culture, How Cognitive Science Alters Accepted Beliefs About Culture and Culture Change and Its Impact on Leaders and Change Agents. This book bridges the gap between the latest research on cognitive science and culture, providing a valuable guide for change leaders, CEOs, and practitioners on how to sustainably work with and change this important resource. It answers many of the major questions that have plagued culture work, such as why so many CEOs and management consultants preach cultural change when so few culture interventions actually succeed. Why CEOs persist in believing culture starts at the top when virtually no research in anthropology suggests that claim. Why most culture-shaped approaches have no answer for how to affect culture in global companies. Why culture doesn't cause us to do anything, yet we persist in believing that somehow it does. And why so many culture-shaped projects focus on corporate values despite the fact modern science shows why changing personal values is exceedingly difficult. So a lot of questions there. Uh, and this is quite a, a discussion that we have, that I have with Dr. David White. So enjoy the interview. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So David, congratulations on your book, Disrupting Corporate Culture. And I read it and I really enjoyed it. I can't say I understood all of it, but I really, really enjoyed it because I'm fascinated with corporate culture, having been in corporates and now being in a a startup in a way or a small company. And what led you to writing the book? And can you give us a brief overview of it? Sure. Well, as I mentioned, what led me to write it was was the idea that I've never seen a corporate culture change or Mm. shaping effort work. Mm. Uh, Despite, you know, Many talented bosses and leaders that I've worked with, lots of resources, uh, great burning platform agendas. I mean, you know, all the right reasons, but I've never seen a, a, cor- a corporate culture shaping effort work. And most of the, it, when I did my research, most of the um, culture shaping or culture change uh, uh, projects or um, programs that have been touted in by pundits and authors in the industry, if you look closely at them, they're, they're either uh, extremely oversimplified and simplistic ideas about culture, um, such as culture as values or culture as norms. And if we change the values, then we've changed the culture. And then also you see a fair amount of um, rather dubious attribution between culture and business results, as if, if we just get the culture right, you know, profits and glory and internal happiness will follow. I'm being a little facetious, but the, the relationship that many authors make between a corporate culture and profit profitability 
or business success is is pretty dubious if you, wow. if you really look under the covers closely. And I've I've spent a lot of time researching the you know a lot of the bestsellers and the, looking at the research. And it's it's um, there's a lot of myth and urban legend in culture. And it's a lot of it is well meaning and well intended. It's because we want cultures to be uh, the place you know the, the construct that people can attach themselves to, so that workplaces become more humane and and companies more profitable and successful, et cetera. But it's, it's not so easy. Uh, and this is why there are thousands and thousands of books on culture and literally billions of dollars spent on the topic because if it was, had been, if it was easy and it had been figured out, it would have been done 30 years ago. Uh, we're, still, we're still toiling without much success at trying to shape and change culture and business. And that's really the, the question I'm after, I'm interested in. And, and it is a fascinating question, and I've never spoken to someone like you before. I've done 123 episodes of the podcast where I've interviewed authors, and they've all kind of said, you know, when you've had a, a distributed global team or a company, that, you know, it's made up of different cultures, but then they all assimilate in a way to the corporate culture. And so if, you, if you've got a team across the, you know, the world, that you've got to take into account that someone's from Japan or someone's from Europe and someone's from America, but actually if they all work for Microsoft, then they should all adhere to a Microsoft culture in inverted commas. Are you saying that that kind of doesn't exist really or is difficult to, to define like a Microsoft culture, let's say? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna say uh, sort of. <laughs> um, it's it's um, having worked at Microsoft, I can tell you with 130,000 people in that company, the idea of a cohesive culture is a myth as it is in most large companies. Mm. It's, a, it's a myth promulgated by leaders and founders to achieve some kind of um, homogeneity and alignment that's fairly elusive and fairly mythical. Um, and it's done really, I was, I'll say it very bluntly and cynically, it's done for profit and done because it's, you know, after Douglas McGregor in the, in the 1970s came out with this concept of theory Y, the MIT professor, theory Y being this, con this idea, this philosophy, essentially that humans are essentially creative uh, creatures and we all want to activate our and actualize our human potential at work. And so therefore the role of management in organizations should be about uh, helping people achieve their fullest versions of themselves and, you know, emancipate themselves from the, uh, you know, what had hitherto been really the prevailing view of, of management, which is essentially to control and coerce that people are essentially lazy and unmotivated in the job of the managers to coerce and cajole and force people to tasks. To tasks. <laughs> that was the prevailing view from Frederick Taylor up, up mm. really through the 1960s and early 70s. And Doug McGregor came along and said, no, no, no. People are creative and human, you know, the human capacity to, to achieve and create is, is limitless. And the job of the manager is really to allow that to happen. So from that basic philosophy came this idea of corporate culture, that if we just get the culture right, humans will flourish. Well, it's a wonderful idea you know, who wouldn't sign up for that? Uh, and the corporate culture industry took off. Consultants ran with that idea and have made, you know, lots of money. Uh, executives ran with that idea because it's self-serving to think that if I just get, as a CEO, get my culture right, you know, great things will follow. There's no literature in the serious literature, in the, the serious disciplines on culture, which are, I include, uh, Cognitive anthropology, anthropology has been studying culture, anthropology has been studying culture for a hundred years, uh, long before business schools got their hands on the, on the concept. 
And there is no supporting evidence to say that cultures are homogenous, that cultures are set by leaders, that cultures are comprised of values. And um, it's, it's, there's a quite a wide schism between what business schools and CEOs promulgate for culture and what the social sciences scientists have to say. And it's really fascinating to see to see why I have, you know, there's, there's some ideas on why that is. One of them is that anthropologists don't really concern themselves with business um, for, for, for re really political reasons and, and reasons, philosophical reasons. Um, and those that study culture and business like economists and industrial psychologists don't read the anthropology. They don't read the sociology. So it's a really fascinating kind of schism. Oh. But, but those disciplines that have been focused on culture um, have a different view. And so part of the role of the book is to just to try to bridge that gap. Wow. So if you're listening to this podcast, we are speaking to Dr. David White on his book, Disrupting Corporate Culture. And hopefully, David, we are going to get onto your book. But I, I just want to ask you, because one of the books I'm reading at the moment is around, you know, one of the many, many, many Amazon books called Working Backwards. And he, he says in one of the title of his chapter right at the beginning, about Amazon being people who work for Amazon being Amazonians, mm -hmm. and that they've got 14 principles that you know they adhere to. And at the beginning, Jeff Bezos installed these principles with his management team, and then it you know then it you know disseminated across the the company, and now it's over you know 100,000 or 200,000 employees, etc. Surely that's an example of you know someone who has created a culture and then distilled it across the entire company. Yeah, I, I know the Amazon culture quite well. A lot of my Microsoft colleagues w work there now. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, <clears throat> excuse me, there is absolutely a relationship between leadership and culture. Don't get me wrong. It's just my point in the book is that it's not linear. It's uh. not that somehow culture comes out of Jeff Bezos's head or just, you know, you know when Jeff goes to the, to the coffee bar to get coffee, uh, the culture magically transformed. Or that somehow if we just, uh, by watching the leader by observing the leader and the leader quote unquote modeling certain behaviors a culture magically forms it doesn't work that way the reason why those 14 principles actually have currency at amazon has to do with the fact that those principles are closely tied to business practices uh. and the way cultures form is through strict adherence sort of rigorous adherence to certain business practices that embody the philosophies or the values of the leadership team and when I say business practices, I don't just mean HR. I really mean, you know, the way, and you read those 14 Amazon principles, you know, the way you conduct meetings, the way you set yeah. strategy, the way you uh, present an idea, the way- And you're you frugal even. Precisely, yeah. mm. the frugality, precisely. But they're codified, they're codified in business practices. And when yeah. I say practices, I use that word very deliberately in the book, a routine, a habit, a process, both formal and informal. And this is the magic of culture. And, and, the, and the cognitive science would tell you that the reason for that is that culture lives in the brain. Culture lives in the brain. And just like a, any human who wants, to, who wants to change, you and I wanna lose 20 pounds or quit smoking or stop drinking uh, to excess, you know, what needs to change is our daily habits and routines. We simply can't do it by, by edict or by decree, I can't just say to you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop drinking for a year, uh, drinking wine for a year, which I love, 
and uh, <laughs> you know, just sort of will myself to that. Very few, very few of us can do that. Um, yeah. What happens is once, we, but if we change our daily habits, the patterns of our lives, the actual daily routines of our lives, we have a much better chance of achieving that goal. The same is true in organizations. Mm, mm, mm. And I, I promise this is the last question around this. <laughs> and I hope people are finding it as interesting as I, I am, or maybe I'm the only one. But if you look at Microsoft, who we both know, and people, I think listeners know as well, when it seems like magically when Sachin and Dala became CEO, that the culture of Microsoft did seem to change. That, it, you know, now it was less confrontational, people, mm -hmm. you know, more accepting, more, the, the way that it, it worked seemed to change. Do you, do you think that was true? Or do you think he came at the same time as, as culture in general was changing within the organization? I, I, I've had the pleasure of meeting Satya before he was CEO and I left, I left Microsoft before he ascended to the role. But yeah. from what I understand and what I, again, the research and the literature would support this, um, certainly Satya had something to do with that. But again, it's not that simple. Yes. Right. Satya brought a different style of leadership, which uh, then over time resulted in different practices necessarily being, or certain practices being de-emphasized, um, other practices being you know, enhanced or emphasized. Um, and, you know, what leaders do essentially is um, set priorities, establish agendas, allocate resources, uh, set the vision, sort of, sort of set the context for what we're going to be doing and not doing. Yeah. That results in most companies in a set of practices. Again, I'm using that word habits, routines, processes, actual business practices that then help humans change their brain chemistry. That is the actual relationship between leadership and culture. C practices sustained over time change the collective's brain. Mm. And so when you start sort of thinking about how you build product differently, for example, or when you start thinking about how you engage with customers differently, how you go to market differently, uh, and, when, and you put in practices that enable that thinking to take shape and take, take form, on a day-to-day -day basis and sustain that over a year or two years, that's when you'll see a culture start to shift. One of the, one of the things that at Antos, we work very closely with a lot of industrial companies. Of course, industrial companies are today going through massive transformation yeah. upon by, by the fourth industrial revolution, which is changing every aspect of our lives. And nowhere is this being felt more than industrial manufacturing companies who are trying to turn themselves into digital companies, right? It's incredibly difficult for a 150-year-old industrial manufacturer to suddenly become Google. In fact, I would argue it's impossible. Um, yeah. And, it's, it's, and the reason why it's impossible is that culture follows task. What you do all day long shapes how you think, just in the way that you know, doctors think differently than airline pilots who think differently than accountants who think differently than software engineers. There's a reason for this, because what we spend all our days doing with our hands, with our brains, with our bodies, indelibly shapes how we think, indelibly shapes how we think. Mm. So, so this is why software companies have categorically different cultures than manufacturing companies, which have different cultures categorically than insurance companies. You know, you do see a relationship between the task environment, what we call the task environment of the organization, you know, what, what, what the organization makes or does all day long. Yeah. You know, insurance companies, Insurance companies, you know, evaluating and pricing risk, which is essentially an actuarial discipline. And so there's actuarial 
principles and beliefs and cult and values permeate those cultures in every insurance company, for example. So the point simply is that for a company to transform, like an industrial manufacturing company to transform into a digital company requires a fundamental shift in practices. You have to stop thinking about um, what, it, what it means and what it takes to build a refrigerator and start thinking about what it means to, to create software or to create data. Yeah. Activities involved in that creation process are quite different as you might imagine. As you know, the old saying goes, you don't ship beta versions of refrigerators for good reason. <laughs> You don't want your refrigerators um, break, you know, breaking on day one. But I'll tell you, as you know, Apple and Google and Microsoft shipped ship software, release software every day with bugs. <coughs> my 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 Safari browser, up until recently, couldn't upload files from a from a third party website because the software engineers behind Safari decided that that was not a high priority bug to fix in the first. <laughs> Yeah. But I knew I knew that in the, in a couple of weeks or in a couple of months that bug was would be fixed and sure enough that now I can do it because there's new software drops new new releases of code as you know yeah at Oracle every two weeks yeah it's a fun so the the act of create you know the, the no whole definition of quality the whole definition of success the whole definition of what it means to actually build something is categorically <clears throat> different in the data world in the in the tech world than the manufacturing sure. world. That's a wonderful analogy, Lance, and that's you know that's exactly right. And you know the the horse and buggy and the Ford motor car coexisted for many years. Mm. Uh, it was not clear as today industrial companies coexist with data and tech companies in the industrial sector, and you know the jury is out as to whether I'm just using the industrial sector as an example as to whether there's a lot of these big manufacturers of of uh, pumps and forklifts and refrigerators etc. will survive the you know the tsunami of chains that is coming at them with, you know, AI, machine learning, uh, chips embedded in cows, udders. I mean, you know, the, the amount, yeah. of techno- amount of tech, robotics, amount of technology that's coming at, our, at, at us uh, in our lives, in our world, and in the end in business is, is overwhelming. Uh, and so the jury's out. And, and sure. it, as I said at the outset, you know, culture change fundamentally is about learning and about curiosity and humility. But, you know, as I say in the book, the culture comes from the brain and culture comes from what you do all day long. Uh, yeah. you, how you spend your time, how you use your hands and your brain and your feet and your mind and, your, and, and how you do that collectively is, is the shaper of culture. And so if you want to actually change culture, you have to change what people do all day long and how they do it. Yeah. Uh, no, mean, no mean feet, right? No. no mean feet. And you can see in the last three to five years, the, the retail apocalypse that has taken place around the world as Amazon is just over, you know, totally decimated all the market and then Macy's go and, you know, all these, these different retail uh, companies go out of business because Amazon is, is taking over. So David, I need to get onto your book. <laughs> so can we just start by looking at the reference system? So you've put something in place to look at culture, could you t- give us a taste of what the reference system is all about? Yes. Well, luckily, we've been talking about the book because most of the stuff I've been I've been spewing <laughs> for the last few minutes is, is, is in is in the book in one form or another. You yeah. use the word reference system. Yeah, re- that's actually a, not my term. It's a term from a wonderful cognitive anthropologist at UCLA named David Cronenfeld, um, who came up with that term. But basically, the simplest way of saying it is culture is knowledge, and uh. the way the metaphor I use in the book 
what I'd love for your leader, your listeners to, um, to think about is think of culture as the operating system. When you think of your iPhone, culture is the, the, the iOS system that runs your iPhone or your Android phone. It's not the app. We, must make, we, we commonly think of culture as the app or the application versus the operating system. And that, that's an attribution error that gets us into a lot of trouble. And the reason is, is that when we, when we think of culture as the app or the, the, you know, the manifestation of something, we think that we can manipulate it, you know, much like any, any resource. We can, you know, there's an input and outputs and we can make the culture do what we want it to do as if it's a piece of machinery uh, or some other kind of, you know, some kind of corporate asset. But when you think of culture as the operating system, what that means is that it runs in the background. It's knowledge in our brains and our collective brains that mm. is there to be used when needed, but most of the time we don't need it. So it's just sort of, it, it's sort of habitual, uh, you know, the technical term, it's pre-conscious. We know it, but don't know that we know it. And, the, you know, I use a couple of very simple examples. How do you know when you walk into an elevator in a typical building, corporate building, that you don't look people in the eye? How do you know that? Nobody yeah. told you that. You didn't go to school to learn that. Or how do you know that is social? obviously mm -hmm. shared and yeah. it helps us run our lives but our brains are you know infinitely complex as you know we don't need to know you know we don't need we don't say to ourselves oh i'm walking into the elevator i better not stare at lance in the eye or he might hit me or something yeah or thinking i'm strange um and we have thousands of instances of that every day in every aspect of our lives and so cultures operate in us in organizations operate in the same way they, they're sort of background knowledge things that you need to know to get by and they manifest in many, many interesting ways. They manifest as norms, they manifest as some, some as lived values, not necessarily the espoused values, not the values that are on the corporate website necessarily, but the ones that are actually lived and practiced every day. And they manifest in practices and practices are the habits, routines, processes, et cetera. So the reference system is all of that. The reference mm. system is the whole enchilada uh, of, 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 uh, beliefs, tacit beliefs, assumptions, practices, and behaviors, uh, as, as well as um, attitudes that comprise a culture. The interesting thing about, uh, and the reason we call it, I call it a reference system, and it's in, in the book I describe it as three different layers, it's kind of like a donut with, with, uh, or a rainbow with three different layers. The outer layer of, of uh, attitudes and behavior sometimes are compensations for the uh, more primitive um, logics or schemas or assumptions at the core of the reference system. For example, <laughs> it, we have a client here in San Francisco, a, a tech startup, a very flashy uh, technology company that is disrupting the whole world of real estate uh, in, 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 in America. Okay. Uh, and they have a stated value of collaboration and teamwork. They believe teamwork and collaboration is a, is a virtue and everybody should collaborate and, and be good team players. Of course, every company on the planet has a similar value. What we have learned in our research there is that what really is valued in the organization at the, at the lived level, at the cognitive level, at the, at the, at the sort of tacit belief level is uh, what is called craft. If you had a name for it, it's called craft. It really means being really good at what you do. Yeah, being at the top of your game. And so what actually happens in the organization is, is I will collaborate with you if I think you're really good at what you do. You know, you're the, you're the top engineer, you're the top data scientist, you're the top marketer. I'll, I'll work with you 
and, and willingly and happily and, and collaborate with you. But if you're, if I don't perceive that you know your craft, I will stay away from you. So this idea of collaboration and teamwork is often, a, is a, in this case, is a compensation for this deeper tacit belief or what we call a dominant logic, what I call a dominant logic in the book, a shared dominant logic or SDL mm. uh, around craft. So craft becomes kind of the core sort of part of the source code of the operating system. And this idea of collaboration is kind of the application, but it's a, the application is a reaction to. So what happens, the, the reason why this even matters is that often when people measure culture or try to or define a culture, they're, they're, they're measuring false positives or they're, they're sort of, they're, they're not distinguishing the signal from the noise because sometimes what you see in a culture is a reaction to something deeper in the culture like this example illustrates. And so the shared dominant logics that, or the SDLs that you spoke about, is that the, the kind of thing about going into a lift and not looking people in the eye and turning around and facing yes. the door? Is, yes. that, is that the dominant logic that then permeates the organization as a whole? Right. And, and you can have lots of different logics in band, you know, ingrained in different people in the organization. Is that what you're saying there? Exactly. It's exactly it, Lance. Well said. And, and the reason why that even matters is that I would love to start, I'd love to get leaders to start thinking about cultures much more as sort of um, DNA, bits of DNA that together comprise this complex human system called our bodies and, our, and, our, and who we are. The same with culture. Cultures are these complex bits of logics that come from different uh, different sources uh, related closely to the task environment of the organization, or sometimes the, the dominant occupational group of the organization, you know, software engineers and software companies, you know, doctors and HM in, in uh, healthcare systems, et cetera. Um, but that the dominant logics, all with unique sources together comprise the, or make up a, you know, your culture. And each culture has kind of a unique signature you know, in the way DNA provides unique signatures or source code provides a unique signature for the, wow. for, the, for the operating system. And if we start thinking of cultures in that way, that's actually a much more sophisticated way and it more in line with the science uh, than thinking of cultures kind of this monolithic whole yeah. um, that is somehow, uh, you know, easy to shape and manipulate like, like manipulating a, you know, a piece of machinery. Because when we think of culture as, as you know, bits of dominant logic that together combine to form these complex reference systems, then we can actually make interventions at the source. Mm. When, you start, when you start intervening in culture at the level of dominant logic, at the level of the tacit belief systems that, are, that we share and hold, and you start seeing how those logics show up across practices, you know, your planning practices, your, your budgeting practices, your, your management practices, management, management and control practices. When you start thinking about how these logics show up in all these different ways, then you start seeing how pervasive your culture is and how hard it is to change. And you make interventions in those practices. Because again, back to what I said earlier, the way you actually change brain chemistry is to change what people do. And that sure. comes through changing the routines and the habits, which mostly are codified in, you know, management practices or, or customer practices or product practices or, or human resource practices across the organization. It also takes culture out of the realm of HR. It's not HR. It's not the, it's not a, a, a it's not a set of responsibilities for the HR department to figure out. It's everybody's responsibility because it's <clears throat> deeply embedded in these, in the way you run your business.
Here's an example of a dominant logic. Microsoft created the operating system. The whole concept yeah. of an operating system was invented by Bill Gates and, and team early on. And that concept of, a, of an operating system or, or a platform, you know, a, a software platform upon which others write their or base their code was essentially, it became a dominant logic that, that permeated the whole Microsoft uh, engineering system. Yeah. And what that means simply is that in my experience, you know, in my research, many product teams, many software engineering teams at Microsoft believed that they should, when they created the code, whether you're writing a printer driver or you're writing, you know, a code for a browser, that you were writing the platform, you were writing code that would be the platform upon which other product teams would base their code. So think about it for a second. You have, you have you know, 50 different product teams, uh, product development teams inside Microsoft writing code that is ostensibly meant to be the platform or the base layer for other teams to base their code on. You're writing yeah, APIs, yeah. programming interfaces for other groups to base their code on. Well, you can see how that can lead to a fair amount of infighting because if you if your team is, you know, if I'm writing a printer driver and I think that you should base your code on my code, yeah, then that can lead to some conflict. And that is where, <laughs> in, in my research, a lot of the infighting comes from the dominant logic <clears throat> platform. Not, well, not so it's but not and so the uh, what has been worked on now is the, you know the platform paradigm has changed dramatically because yeah. now now Microsoft works you know as many as all big tech companies do in the cloud the a different a different paradigm has taken over the operating system paradigm is no longer as ascendant as a dominant logic in that company because operating systems themselves are no longer sort of the core it's a main part of the business but what's more dominant is is what we what we see operationally in the cloud and that's yeah. that changes every that changes everything and and a, a completely different industry might be like general electric who you know they for a long time they had you know the way they worked is that the, the bottom 10 percent of employees as far as i could understand you know got weeded out of the system and the you know the yeah. strong survive and the the weak got you know evicted and that was all very well and good until it didn't work anymore <laughs> exactly exactly and yeah, so we, did, that, we we emulated that system at Microsoft as well, uh, yeah. to much you know much to to ill effect as well. And so we were we were speaking to Dr. David White, and he's the author of a book called Disrupting Corporate Culture. I have the link where you can buy it. You can buy it from Amazon. You can buy it from all sorts of different places, Goodreads, etc. So look for the book. It's really well worth reading. Disrupting Corporate Culture. Um, and so thank you so much, David. And I hope you, the listener, found this as interesting and useful as I did. If I hope you enjoyed my questions. It wasn't just me speaking to you, David, that I hope some other one got value from it. And if you'd like to contact me, then please do. My email is lance at ideastorm.co.za and my website is ideastorm.co.za or businessbookshelfpodcast.com. If you've got an author that you want me to interview, then please let me know. Or if you read a book that you'd like me to interview, then you know, just email at lance at ideastorm.co.za. You you could be in line to winning a branded shirt. That's amazing, hey, David? You could have a, a T-shirt with the Business Bookshelf podcast branding on if you win a competition that I'm offering. That's like, something worth I like winning. Your, uh, I like your, uh, your, your light bulb logo <laughs> with the book. <laughs> so thank you, David. And thank you, everyone. Until next time, stay safe, stay well. Bye-bye.